Okay, Genesis chapter three. Three, the fall of man. As we've been following our story in Genesis, here's what we've seen. God has created a good place for man to thrive. It's paradise, but it's not perfect because there's a usurper. Because even in Genesis 1 or Genesis 2, when, when God first creates man, he gives him a challenge. He says, go and subdue. There's something that needs to be subdued. And in chapter 3, we meet that something. And it doesn't go very well. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave also some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he, that being Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. This is where the story of this good place that God has made and put man in takes a 90, possibly 180 degree turn. And we're headed on a different trajectory for the rest of human existence an incredibly important chapter. And there's so many things we could look at at this chapter and so many ways to look at it. Um, but I'm, I, I just, I'm, I'm a practical guy. I'm a blue collar dude. I got calluses on my hands. I got dirt under my fingernails. I just tend to approach the scripture very, very practically. And I think that that might be right in this passage because that's the original audience. We keep touching on the fact that the original audience here, they're the brick-making slaves from Egypt. That's who is getting these verses. That's who the original audience is. But before we jump into that practical stuff that I love so much, we do have to address a few giant doctrinal philosophical ideas that this chapter addresses. And it's this, did God create evil? And if not, why is there so much evil in the world? Did God create evil? He, he made the tree. He made the... Did God create evil? And here's the answer. No, God did not create evil. God created choice. 
Here's what God did. He made a beautiful place for man to live. And then he made man and man was unique. Man was made in God's own image, the image bearers of God. But in order to be true image bearers, we need freedom. We need to be able to act. We need to be able to create. We need choice. And so God created choice. He gave Adam a choice. He gave Eve a choice. And what's really interesting thing to me is the choice that he gave to Adam and Eve is the same choice that we have each and every single day. And if you really wanna boil it down, it's pretty much the only choice there is. And it's this, are we going to take the good things that God created in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2? Are we gonna take them and are we gonna interact with them, relate to them, um, manage them the way that God intended, the way that he will instruct us to? Or are we gonna take those same good things and decide to use them or relate to them in the way that we think is best, that we think is most convenient, that we think is most expedient. That's the choice, my way or God's way. I mean, take for example, the two most evil things I can think of, murder and rape. It's Genesis three. I mean, it's gonna be a heavy night. So, you know, buckle up, we'll laugh a little bit. Murder. Murders are overwhelmingly committed, not by strangers, but by people who know each other, right? Who are in relationships with each other. Husband kills wife, friend kills friend, neighbor kills neighbor, or as we'll see in the next chapter, what? Brother kills brother. But relationships aren't bad, are they? No, relationships are beautiful. They're created. They're a part of the design. They're actually a part of how we reflect God and his triune being as father, son, and spirit coexist and pour into each other in relationship. We're made to have that kind of relationship with each other, but those relationships comes with instructions, don't they? God says, I created relationships. Let me give you some instructions how to do it my way. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be kind to those who despitefully use you. Lay down your life for your friend. Forgive and don't hold grudges. But we aren't forced to approach relationships that way, are we? No, we're given a choice. I can approach relationships that way, pouring myself out into other people, or I can make relationships all about me, how you treat me, what I get out of it. Not dying to self, but making it all about myself not forgetting your wrongs or forgiving your wrongs, but remembering them and holding on to them and using them like a sledgehammer to beat you with when you wrong me. And if I deal with it that way, then instead of the love that God designed for relationships, I end up with envy and strife. And if I let that stuff marinate down into my soul, what I end up with is hate. And instead of love, I have hate and anger. And we see humans commit the most horrible acts against each other to people they're in a relationship with. We see murder. Great thing, relationships, design, love, but we can do it God's way. We can die to ourselves and we can pour into other people or we can make it all about me. It's the single choice that we have. My way, God's way. What about rape? Sex is right here. It's in the design. One man, one woman, covenantal relationship with God, and it's good. Done correctly, it is a brilliant, beautiful gift that bonds and creates and draws married couples together. And it's important. I don't think we say that enough. Married couples, sex is important. I remember sitting in premarital counseling and Mark Scud said, what is this, like 17 years ago? I'm getting old. Um, it's been pretty fun though. I don't mind getting old. It's been a good age. Um, he said, sex is the glue. 
I'm like, interesting. 17 years later, there's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of truth to that. It's important, but it takes dying to self and it takes being about the other person and it takes patience and it takes communication. But what about when I take sex and I make it all about me? My desires, my timeline, my needs, then the beautiful gift that God made gets perverted. And we see things like pornography and human trafficking and rape. My way, all about me, God's way, loving, pouring, caring. It's back to the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Ultimately, it was a real tree, but it also represents every choice we have. Am I going to trust God, his word, his spirit, his people to be the ultimate authority on what is good and what is evil? Or am I going to decide for myself what I want to be good and what I want to call evil? It's the only choice there is. So God didn't create evil. He created choice. Well, then why is there so much evil? Because we chose wrong and we continue to choose wrong. And when Adam and Eve chose wrong, it broke the world. Irreparably broke the world. It does not say that someday when King Jesus returns, that he's going to make this earth perfect, does it? No, it's broken. It's so broken. He's like, no, we're going new earth. We're going new earth. It's going to be better. I'm going to fill it with people who have learned to love me and follow me and have been filled with my son and they won't ever break it again. But it's broken. That's why my friend Susan's sick. That's why there's anger and there's strife. That's why we see natural disasters. We live in a broken world. It doesn't mean it's not still a good place where we can thrive and we can pour into what God has for us, but it's broken. It's broken. Okay, but, but coming back to this chapter to begin with, I don't think that those kind of like deep philosophical, existential, doctrinal questions were what the original audience had in mind. Okay, I think for the original audience, this chapter was a lot more like this. So I have been um, totally geeking out lately on World War I, right? So I'm listening to this six-part podcast. It's like four hours each part. And I've already listened to it. I listened to it a couple years ago. And then I went on a road trip with my dad like two weeks ago. And I'm like, I'm like, hey, I'm going to have him listen to this podcast. He'll get totally hooked on it. And I got hooked all over again, right? So, but it's amazing. There's this incredible scene near the beginning of the war. And if you know much about World War I, you kind of picture that trench warfare where there people are just, no one's making, but at the beginning of the war, it wasn't like that. Right? Germany had invaded France and France had, had had a major victory and they're running the Germans out. And the Germans, are they, the French think, are fleeing away from them. And the French, the entire French army is marching along and all of a sudden, an airplane flies overhead and lands in a field. Now remember, it's like 1913. Okay, so this is like Orville and Wilbur Wright type of airplanes. Okay, they're like brand new technology. This guy landing in a field was an act of death defiance. And he comes running out to the army and he's like, listen, the Germans are on the, that hill right there. It's not a retreat, it's an ambush. There's hundreds of thousands of them right there on that hill. They've got machine guns, they've got mortars, they're dug in. And if you don't know that they're there, you're gonna get wiped out. That's Genesis chapter three. Now, 
the serpent. It is a warning to us. They're right there. This is their position. This is their tactics. This is how everything is going to get played out. And if you're not aware of it, you're going to get wiped out. So we're going to get this great picture of our enemy and his tactics and what he does, but we're also going to get a picture of us and our human tendencies as we see Adam and Eve and how they respond. Because the other thing that's so interesting to me about World War I, see, I told you I'm geeking out on it, is it's this meshing of two different eras. So at the beginning of the war, you've got one side that's got like machine guns in bunkers, and you've got the other side that literally has men on horses with swords and white gloves. And what they find out real quick at the beginning of the war is, if you take a whole bunch of horses and men with swords and you storm people who have machine guns, you die very, very quickly because that's a bad tactic. That's not going to work. That's what we see here. We see in Adam and Eve's failures ourselves. It's like a mirror. I see all the same mistakes I make myself and they don't work. And then at the end of the chapter, we're going to see God and we're going to see how he responds to us when we fail. And it's so beautiful. I have to make sure I leave enough time for it. So first, our enemy's tactics. Now the serpent. He comes out of nowhere, doesn't he? How does the last chapter end? The last chapter ends like this. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. That's like happily ever after. Now the serpent. And I think the first thing we have to realize about our real enemy is that he pops up out of nowhere and it's calculated. They've got their marriage, they're doing well, and he's going to insert himself. Ever feel like that? Like just when you think you got things going well or you're trying to do something for the Lord or you're trying to recommit your life, then boom, that's where he pops up. Whenever I do premarital counseling, I tell, I tell take them to this passage right here. I said, you're gonna get married. You're gonna go on your honeymoon. You're gonna come home. And now the serpent, he's gonna get in Involved, just got back from a men's retreat, women's retreat, decided to take the family to church. Do you ever fight more with your wife than Sunday morning when you finally decide we're going to go to church? <laughs> we're going to get up, right? And then everyone's fighting. It's like, dude, we got everybody out of the door the other day when we were going to go to the all sports park. Why is it so hard? Now the serpent. And I think the most important thing for us to realize, and I tell my couples this in premarital counseling whenever I do them is, listen, that attack, that fight that you're having, that strife, that, that tendency that you're feeling that day after you decide, I'm gonna get up in the morning and I'm gonna read my Bible and, and then you're just so tired or your, your throat's itchy or that's a spiritual attack. And if you don't recognize it as a spiritual attack, you're gonna get mowed down like a guy with a sword facing a machine gun. That's spiritual. And there are times in my life as a husband, as a father, um, where I'm just looking at what's going on in my house and every once in a while I'm like, hold on, this is spiritual. Why are we fighting right now? This is spiritual. We need to pray. We need to stop and we need to fight spiritual enemies with spiritual 
battlements, spiritual, why can I not think of the word? Weapons, thank you. It's a pretty common word. <laughs> we gotta fight with spiritual weapons. Pray, fast, pour in, but it's not gonna work unless I recognize it. Sometimes I think, oh, I'm just really grumpy today. Maybe, or maybe now the serpent. Maybe now the serpent, because he pops up out of nowhere and see what it says about him. It says he was more crafty than any other beast. Every translation tends to translate that word differently. It's, they're so interesting. You've got crafty or shrewd or cunning or sneaky. My favorite one is the original King James, which says the serpent was more subtle than any beast in the garden. That's so interesting. This is our first glimpse of the enemy. And it doesn't say he's evil or corrupt or vile or perverted. It says he's crafty and shrewd and subtle. That's how he's gonna come in. It's going to be subtle and we need to be aware. Anybody see um, that study? Now, I didn't read it, so I heard about it. The study that the Wall Street Journal did on TikTok a few weeks ago, so they, they don't fact check me on this. I've got, this. I've got the general idea of the story down right, but my exact facts are gonna be a tiny bit wrong. But they created a bunch of accounts as pretending that they were 12 and 13 year old girls. And they got video after video after video about suicide. People talking about how they were gonna do it, why they wanted to commit suicide. That's evil. But it's also sneaky, isn't it? That's the enemy. And parents, if your kids have TikTok, read the study and then get rid of it. It's evil. It's evil. And it's sneaky and it's subtle. And that's how our enemy acts. Constant vigilance. That's what we need. If you want to be ready, you need constant vigilance, and you need a plane in the sky pointing things out. And that's what this word is. This is the airplane in the sky that's gonna be like, that's the danger zone. That's where the enemy is. That's where the pitfalls are. Pay attention. So that's our enemy. He's crafty and he pops up out of nowhere. But look at his tactics. Because here's what he does. He comes in and he asks questions. He doesn't just outright point things. Hey, Eve, eat the apple. No, he asks some questions. He questions God's word. That's the first thing he does. Same tactic today. Playbook hasn't changed. I know you've heard some of these in your head driving home as we enter into as the enemy tries to be crafty. Does the Bible really say you can't have a drink? Does the Bible really say that sex is only for marriage? What about two people who love each other? Does the Bible really say, wife, submit to your husband? He's a jerk. Does the Bible really say, husbands, die to yourself and love your wife like Christ loved the church? Does it really say that? Does it really say that you're supposed to give financially or love your enemies? Does the Bible really say that you're fearfully and wonderfully made because you don't look like her? You don't look like him. That's the subtle lies that he comes in. 
does the Bible really say that God would always forgive you? Because you know what you did last week. It's pretty bad. Does it really say that? Does it really say spare the rod and spoil the child? Does it? That's what the enemy comes and he asks us. And then he puts in partial truths because that's also what Satan is doing. Yeah, but it's a really old book. We know so much more today about the brain and psychology and science. If it was written today, it would be different. You've changed, you've evolved. You don't need that anymore. You can figure out good and evil for yourself, right? How many of us have heard at least one of those things? Probably this week, right? They're the lies of the enemy. And when we get to Eve, we're gonna talk about how we combat those because she does it all wrong. And I do too. But that's the first thing. That's his tactic. He questions God's word, but then he questions God's goodness. What does he tell Eve? God's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to know good and evil. Eve, same tactic. You deserve this. It's your form of self-care. Other people get to enjoy that. Same tactic. And he'll come in and he'll whisper to us and he'll tell us these things. Hey, did the Bible really say? Is it really, is it really that bad? Is it really, God's holding out on you, right? What are, the, what are the rules in the Bible for? Are they because God likes rules or are they because God wants us to thrive, right? He made a good place. He set out some good rules. And the, the Bible says that God wants us to thrive. See, sin isn't forbidden because it's bad. Wait, sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad, right? Playing soccer on the freeway isn't bad because I tell my kids it's bad. I tell my kids it's bad because they're gonna get flattened. That's what the Bible is saying. And Satan loves to poke holes in that. No, it's not. God's holding out on you. And then his number one thing is he says this, you will not surely die. He denies the consequences of sin, doesn't he? And he'll come in a whisper in my ear, just tonight, it won't hurt anyone. It's just porn, it's just pot, it's just a few, it'll be fun, it's no big deal. And he denies the consequences of sin. And that's what our enemy does over and over and over again. And his playbook hasn't changed, has it? Same thing for me and for you today. And we need to see these things and know them for what they truly are. And we have to combat them. Because as we move into Eve, what does Eve do when Satan comes and asks her that? When Satan comes and asks Eve and says, did God really say? Eve takes the bait and she enters into the conversation with Satan. And here's what I know about myself. Whenever I enter into that conversation, driving on the way home, hey, you know, it's just a few, it's just tonight. I'm like, well, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe I've lost. I've lost, right? We do not have conversations with the snake. We combat him. And the very first thing that Eve should have done when the snake came up to her and said, did God really say, she said, said, you know what? God comes and walks through the garden every night. I'm gonna ask, because I'm not sure, right? And instead she enters into this conversation. 
We can't do it. We cannot get into that conversation because he's crafty. And I don't think I've ever had a long-term conversation with Satan where he's trying to get me to do something that I know I shouldn't do that I've won. I never have. The only times I've ever won is when he first approaches me and I'm like, no, be gone, snake. I don't talk to you. That's a lie. Sin does have consequences. That's not what the word says. That's not what God's called me to do. You need to go away. But when he comes and he whispers to me and I'm like, yeah, you know, well, maybe not. I'm done. Maybe some of you can walk that conversation out and beat him in an argument. I've never won. Not once. I've always lost unless I immediately go, no, that's not what we're doing. Eve's first mistake, my first mistake so often is I actually, I bite. I bite when Satan comes and whispers and I enter into that conversation. But then the next thing that Eve does, I think is so interesting to me because she adds things to God's word. The, the, the Bible is like, even, even Adam and Eve are like three weeks old and legalism has already entered the world, right? I know some people argue that like maybe Adam and Eve have lived in the garden for years or for decades before this encounter happens. I, I have a serious issue with that. And it's mostly from the end of verse two. And it says, the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So Adam's got a hot naked wife and he's got a mandate to fill the earth with kids. And there's no babies yet. So it can't have been very long. Personal thoughts, right? I'm just saying, I don't think it's been very long. I think this happens right away. And Satan comes to Eve and what does she say? And what does he say? He says, did God really say? And she says, he said, you can eat of all the trees, but you cannot eat of this tree or touch it lest you die. Did God say you can't touch the tree? No. So who added that? Well, there's pretty much only two people on the earth, right? It's pretty easy. It was a lot easier to figure out who had made mistakes in my house when I had two kids. Now there's four. It's infinitely more complicated, right? When it was one, it was really simple. It wasn't me. You're the only one. <laughs> I know it wasn't my wife and I'm not gonna fess up if it was me, so it's you. Um, that's how that works. All right. She's added something. Don't touch it lest you die. Legalism's dangerous. You know that? I love the definition, and I think this is old Edgewater definition from one of the first couple years I started coming here. But legalism is this. Legalism is putting up a stop sign where God puts up a caution. Should you touch the tree? Probably not a good idea, is it? But is that what God said, we need to be really, really careful with what God says in both our own lives. And I think specifically as parents or grandparents or people who are speaking into or mentoring people, be oh so careful. Because here's the thing, real sin has real consequences, but fake sin, things that I call sin because I just wanna be legalistic about them, they don't have real consequences. Right, so let's take kind of a silly example. I do not want my kids to get hooked on drugs, okay? They're a sin, that's evil. I've seen what it does to people. It opens people up for all sorts of evil things. And the Bible says your body's a temple 
And you should not be doing those things. And so I tell my kids, listen, drugs are evil. That's a sin. But I'm a dad and I want to be really careful, you know? And so I'm thinking and I'm like, well, maybe, maybe that's not enough. Caffeine's kind of a drug. Maybe I should tell my kids caffeine's a sin. There's churches who've done that, right? We don't want to get hooked on anything. So caffeine's a sin. To, okay, kiddos. Okay, drugs are evil. Don't get drunk. And, and caffeine's a sin. But I hear sugar's really addictive too. All right. Sugar is also bad, okay? So no drugs, no alcohol, no caffeine, no sugar. They're all bad and evil and wrong. Don't do them, kids. So what happens? Well, you bring your kids to church. And the first thing we do is fill them with sugar, right? (laughs) So there goes that portion of it. And the kids are like, well, sugar didn't hurt me. Mom and dad said sugar was bad. Sugar didn't hurt me. Maybe, maybe what they said is bad doesn't actually have negative consequences. Maybe I'll try some caffeine. Well, it tasted awful, but whoa, I'm full of energy. That, that, didn't, that didn't really hurt me. And then we get to alcohol and drugs. But the problem is I told them that there was consequences for things that God never said there were consequences for. See, Eve, what does it say? It says that she took the fruit. She touched it and she didn't die. And I'm sure she thought, oh, well, if I touch it and don't die, I can probably eat it and not die because there was no consequences when I touched it because that's not what God said. And that's the danger of legalism. And we need to be oh so careful in my own life and the life of those that I'm pouring into and speaking God's word of. Something that challenges me whenever I'm up here teaching, make sure I stick to what God really said, right? So she adds instructions and then she does what we call this classic sin slide. What does it say in verse six? Six says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. First she saw, then she delighted, then she desired. She dwelt on this. James 1.14 puts it this way. Each person is tempted when he was lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. It's the classic slide. I saw, but then I lingered. I think this one especially because of how visual we are. Men, this one's really challenging to us. I'm gonna drive down the road in Grants Pass. And sometimes I'm gonna see women not in church clothes, right? But then I turn away and I'm good. But if I, if I continue to see and I continue to look, then it might lead to delight and delight to desire. And this is a very dangerous downward spiral. Psalms 1 Blessed is the man who walketh not, who stands and who sits. Don't linger in those places. We will find ourselves in compromising, difficult, troublesome situations from time to time. Move on. That's the challenge here right now. I saw and then I looked away. The rest of the book is different if that's Eve's response. Yeah, I saw and then I moved on and did something else. 
I moved on and, and waited for my father to come and walk with me in the garden in the evening. I saw, and then I went to talk to Adam and, and think about whether or not this is really something we should do. But no, no, we saw, and then we delighted and we desired. And what Eve does here, which I think is so dangerous, is she trusts her senses. This is all senses. We have a word for this today. It's this, I felt like it. I just felt like it was the right thing to do. I just felt like I should be with that person. I just felt, okay, but did you ask your father? Did you seek for wisdom? Or did you just trust your senses? Because your senses, just like Eve's, will lead you very far astray. She saw and then delighted and then desired. And it led to her downfall. And it leads to my downfall too when I allow myself to walk down that pathway. Okay, so she enters into the conversation. She adds legalism. She trusts her senses and lingers there and heads down this slide. But then I think this is so interesting because she finally, she falls into this trap that Satan lays for her where she's looking for spirituality as opposed to relationship. And I think it's something we need to be so careful of. See, the terminology here is really interesting. If you're reading through Genesis 1, you see this. In the beginning, God and God and God. And it's this term Elohim. It's a term for God, but it can be used for pretty much any God in the Bible. It's a super powerful God. But then we come to verse chapter two and God has created man and he's made a covenant with man. And now God's covenant name is used. The Lord God and the Lord God and the Lord God. That's what we see over and over again in Genesis chapter two. It's Yahweh, it's Jehovah. It's a specific being. It is the creator who you are worshiping, who you are in covenant with. Today, we would say Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ, it's Jesus Christ, it's Jesus Christ who saves us, who indwells us, who loves us, who died for us. It's the spirit and it's God. But then the Satan comes and what does he say? Does he say, he says the Lord God and then the woman replies, oh, but it's just Elohim, it's just God. And their conversation from them on is just about God and not about Jesus. It's just about spirituality and not about Christianity. And I think it's so dangerous because we can get sucked into that today. And we can think, oh, this is, this is spiritual. This is, this is healthy. This is, but is it Christian? Is it of Jesus Christ? Right? Because it's so interesting what 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy 2 says, says that Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. It doesn't mean that she was weak-minded. It means she was desiring something spiritual and Satan deceived her and said, this is the pathway to what you want spiritually. And God is like, no, I'm the only pathway to relationship. And she gets sucked and, and we can get sucked into the same tendencies. Thinking things are spiritual and finding ways to learn about good and evil outside of the knowledge that God has given us, All right? Okay, so that's Eve. And then we have Adam, Adam's mistakes. He makes some big ones too. It, we're gonna end on a high note, just so you know. It's okay, you guys all look very depressed. God shows up as always, and it's brilliant. And we'll get there in a few minutes. But first, men, Adam, we make some mistakes as well. 
shocked me the first time I saw this. And I don't know why I grew up in Sunday school and never saw it, but it says this. It says, and Eve turned to her husband who was with her and he ate also. Adam, men, what are you doing? What are you doing while Eve is having this conversation with the snake, while your wife is getting lured away? Are you just standing there passively watching, doing nothing, not getting involved, not wanting to rock the boat? Well, she's hot, you know, and I don't want to, I don't want to make her mad at me. We've been having a good time. And it's, I don't want to, Adam's passive. Adam is passive and it's deadly for his family. It's absolutely deadly for his family. And I think today we have an epidemic of passive men who will not stand up, make the hard decisions, say, no, that's not right. I'm gonna do the hard things. I'm gonna get rid of TikTok on my kid's phone. I'm gonna get rid of Snapchat on my kid's phones, also evil. Are you checking your son's phone history for porn? I don't wanna, I, I don't wanna know, it's, it's uncomfortable. Passive and dangerous. Are you talking to your daughter about boys? Are you talking about Jesus to your family? Well, I don't even know really where to start. Then take notes, read, ask questions, punch snakes, right? What happens in this story if Satan comes out and he says, Eve, did God really say, and Adam says, come on, honey, we don't talk to snakes, right? We don't talk to snakes. And if he comes after us, I'm gonna kick him. What happens to the story? What happens to my family? If I'm constantly aware, and this is so challenging to me because I wouldn't say that I'm passive, but I'm, I'm just kind of happy-go-lucky and I'm not necessarily as constantly vigilant as I should be about the enemy's plans for my daughters and my son and my wife and my ministry. And that happy-go-lucky, not hyper-vigilant can, can come out with the same negative effect as passivity. I need to be aware. I need to be looking for these things. I need to be in prayer. Lord, keep my eyes open. Lord, protect my family. Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, make me not passive. It affects Adam's family too, doesn't it? Is his family doing well? Next chapter? No, I don't think so. In fact, I would, I would say there's a strong argument to be made that Cain really is so bothered by his father's passivity that he rebels and goes the opposite direction and becomes aggressive. Well, that's not what men are supposed to be either. It's not passive. It's not aggressive. It's assertive. That's what Jesus was. He was assertive, kind, loving, caring, open arms, but that's not right. We don't do that. Not in my house. We don't talk to snakes. We don't talk to snakes. Adam's passive. And then Adam refuses to take responsibility for his mistakes. What does Adam do after he eats? Well, God comes to him, right? First thing he does is he hides. I'm gonna hide. 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna first, first, Adam tries to fix it himself, doesn't he? Dang it, naked. Um, fig leaves, that'll do it, right? So Adam first step tries to fix it himself. Has that ever worked? Ever? No. What is, what is one of your wife's least favorite sayings from you? Oh, no problem, honey, I'll fix it. Sure you will. <laughs> I got the plumber on speed dial right here. So once you've fixed it, let me know and I'll call him. Adam tries to fix it himself and then he hides, right? And then what does he say when God comes? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you? The woman who you gave me, she gave it to me. It was my fault. I'm the victim here. There's only two other sentient beings in all of creation and Adam blames them both in a single sentence. It's brilliant. The woman you gave me, and he takes no responsibility. And I think that this is a major challenge for men because one of men's, one of mine biggest fears is a fear of failing. We don't like to fail. That's a good thing. God created us to have dominion and to, to rule and to reign with him. But I've got a newsflash for you in case you weren't aware, you're gonna fail. Adam did, I do, you will. And unless you're dead, you're probably not done failing. And when we fail, we have two choices. We can hide and we can blame, and we can make excuses like Adam, or we can own up and take responsibility. And I don't know if there's anything better for a family to see than a man who will stand up and say, yes, I made a mistake. That's where I went wrong. This is my plan to fix it. Forgive me. Let's move forward together, right? My dad has this saying in the business that we own. He says, it's not the jobs that go well that make you a good business. It's the jobs that don't. How do you handle the jobs that don't go well? How do you handle the days where you lost your temper? What do you do after that? Blame? Well, if everybody had just gotten ready for bed when I told them to, I wouldn't have exploded at everyone. Blame? Hide, I'm just gonna go out in the shop, work on my car for a little while, make excuses. Well, you weren't helping. Or do you say, family, I'm sorry. That was not right. I should not have lost my temper that way. Will you forgive me? I love you. What does that do in a household? I'm really curious as to what that would do in this chapter. I think they still broke earth, but I wonder how Adam's relationship with God would have been different if that's how he had reacted. I'm just curious, I don't know. Make excuses, blames, and hides. And the last thing about Adam, which I think is so interesting, is that he has disordered priorities. Because that verse in 2 Timothy about Eve is so interesting because it says, Eve was deceived. It doesn't say Adam was deceived. Adam knew exactly what he was doing. He's like, I'm choosing my hot wife over God. That's what I'm doing. I know she just ate. She's probably gonna get kicked out of the garden. I'm going with her. He has disordered priorities. And I think so oftentimes when I see my life headed in a direction it shouldn't be, it's because my priorities are not correct. Because I can be so task oriented and I can be all about my job or all about this task at my home or all about, and I miss my priorities. God, 
so far above. It's, we, we say there's an ordered priorities where like God and then wife and then God, like way up there. This is the relationship I need to be working most. When this relationship is doing well, almost all the other ones begin to fall in line, right? But Adam's not worried about this one. He's worried about this one with his wife. He's like, oh, well, you know, I, 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 don't, wanna, I don't wanna rock the boat with her. And it all goes poorly. It's my father. That's the relationship. And then it's my spouse. And then it's my kids. Don't mix those up. That's not a right order either. Nothing will bless your kids more than you loving and pouring into and caring for and having a beautiful marriage with your spouse. Your kids will flourish under that. And then your kids. And then your ministries and your jobs and your neighbors, right? But God is so far above the rest of this. It's another thing that I tell premarital because I use this chapter a lot in premarital. It's like, listen, you work on your relationship with Jesus. If you're having trouble in your marriage, great, work on your marriage, but work on your relationship with Jesus. Come to me and be like, my relationship with Jesus is on fire and my marriage is still a train wreck. Okay, maybe, but more often it's the other way around. My relationship, my marriage is a train wreck. How's your relationship with Jesus? Non-existent? Start there. Start there, Adam. It's going to go better for you. So we have all these mistakes, but then God shows up. And here's what he does. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly, you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that had turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What does God do for Adam and for Eve when they sin? What does God do for me when I sin? God pursues. That's the first thing we see. Is God like, I am done with those two. All these trees, they've been there for like five minutes and they eat, ridiculous. No, God pursues. Know this, when you make mistakes, 
when you've walked away, if you're living in sin, God is pursuing you. Your wayward child, your niece, your nephew, your aunt, your uncle, keep praying for them. God is pursuing them. God is in pursuit of the sinner. And it's so important that we lead with that when telling people about Jesus, when sharing with people who are struggling, listen, God is after you. He came to the garden to look for you. He knows exactly what you did. You can't hide, don't make excuses, just come to your father. There's only one time in the entire Bible where we see God in a hurry. Do you know that? Do you know where it is? It's at the end of the story of the prodigal son the son who has squandered everything. And he finally comes back and the father, the picture of God runs, which culturally was so taboo, like mature men, head of households, they do not run. God is saying, I am so after you. When you turn around to face me, I'm going to run to you. God's in pursuit of you. We don't need to hide. And if you're hiding today because of your sins, know this, God's in pursuit. God is in pursuit. And then God does this. He punishes and he provides. There's punishment for sin, isn't there? Sin has consequences. And I, I, I hesitate to use the word punish because today we get this idea like anytime I make a mistake, God is going to punish me. No, we live in this new era where God laid all of those things on Jesus. And Jesus took the punishment for our sins, but someone had to, and it was him. And that punishment has been doled out so that you and I don't have to take it, but there's still consequences. There's still consequences to our mistakes. But then God provides a covering and a path to reconciliation. It's this very short little verse, but you got to catch it. He says, and the Lord God made garments of skins and clothed them. He killed something, something had to die. Sin requires punishment and death. God gave punishment, although it was kind, they didn't die immediately. And God provided a sacrifice, a way for Adam and Eve to be restored to covenant clean relationship with God. For us, it's Jesus. That's the provision that God has made for us to be reconciled to him. And it's there, it's so beautiful. God pursues, he punishes, and he provides this covering for sin and this pathway to reconciliation. But then he also protects. It's so interesting. He says, listen, Adam and Eve, you can't eat from the tree anymore because you've already started down your pathway to death. And if you're dying, if your mortal body is dying, but you're eating from this tree and living forever, it's not gonna be well for you. That's not a punishment, it's a protection. And then finally, God plans. It's the most important verse in this chapter and it's the proto-evangelicum. It's what God says to Satan. It says, I will put enmity between the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he, that is going to be Jesus, will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first mention of the gospel. God says, listen, you broke the earth, but I got a plan. I've got a plan for restoration. I've got a plan to fix this thing. And the question is, are we gonna to try to do it our way 
or are we gonna follow God's plan? Or we put our faith in Jesus Christ in the redemption and the reconciliation that he provides knowing he took our punishment, right? And he provides the reconciliation for us. God pursues, punishes, protects, provides, and plans. And as I was thinking about this this week, I thought that is a beautiful, beautiful example to any parent out here dealing with a child who's walking in sin, right? Pursue them. Hey, honey, son, daughter, don't care how old you are. I love you. I'm after you. There's nothing you can do that make me not your son. Punish if they're the right age, right? Punish. Spare the rod and spoil the child. It's a real thing. But then what? Provide a pathway for reconciliation. I think too often as parents, we end with punish. Okay, like I pursued them and I punished them. Okay, but have you provided a pathway so they feel like they're reconciled to you again and that they've been forgiven and loved, right? My kids get a spanking and then a hug. And then we normally go sit on daddy's lap for a little while and read a book because there needs to be this pathway back that's provided. And then a plan. Okay, listen, you tend to do this a lot, right? You walk into your room, you grab your sister's thing. She says something mean and you hit her with it. So how about we like, don't go in her room. Okay, let's make a plan here. Let's get practical. And then be reconciled. It's such a beautiful thing. God is pursuing us so that he can protect us and provide for us and put us into this beautiful plan to save the earth that we broke. Amen? Father, thank you. Great, great chapter, so full. I pray that we would take something to heart tonight that we've learned. I pray that we would be challenged by the mistakes that we can make and the tendencies that we see even in Adam and Eve. But Lord, mostly just that we were encouraged that when we fall, we are pursued. I don't need to hide. I don't need to make excuses. I don't need to blame. I just need to come to my father who's running towards me with open arms. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.